Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Ear Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetearstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. Today I'm joined by Paige Dickey. Paige is a garden writer, lecturer, and designer based in Connecticut. She's written numerous books and is the co-founder of the Open Days program at the Garden Conservancy. She's also one of my favorite writers. Her most recent book, Uprooted, A Gardener Reflects on Beginning Again, was published in September 2020. It tracks her move from her home and garden, Duck Hill in New York, to her new home, Church House, in the Berkshires. I think it captures so much of what I love about Paige's writing. It's incisive and transporting, and celebrates garden design, the growth of the gardener, and her seemingly endless capacity to learn and experience more in the garden. I'm so happy to have her here today. Welcome, Paige. Thank you, Jill. I'm delighted to be here in virtually anyway. I wanted to begin by asking you to tell us where you are in the world and what fall looks like for you. We're in sort of southern Connecticut, but southern New England, but right at the foot of the the beginning of the Berkshire Mountains. And it's feeling chilly here at night. You know, we I almost had a fire last night in the fireplace. And Everything is fruiting, which is so beautiful. I mean, all the viburnums are fruiting, and in the wet meadow, the shrub dogwoods are fruiting. And so it's very autumnal, and I'm seeing mushrooms and just a, a, a real... And and some of the leaves are, are starting to turn, too. Yeah, yeah. So, can you describe a little bit your garden at Church Hill for us, what, how, how you see it today? This morning, my husband and I were having breakfast, and I, I have a big bush, you might say, of a perennial called Helianthus lemon queen. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a sunflower, but it's a perennial sunflower. And it was rustling this morning. There was a little bit of a breeze, but it was rustling, and I got my binoculars, and there were two goldfinches in just swaying on these stems, eating the center of this wonderful sunflower. Anyway, so I think particularly with the fall garden, certainly around the house, I have things to attract birds, whether it's hummingbirds, you know, and they like anything with a throat, and they're still very active, or indeed the goldfinches and cedar waxwings. So what do I have? I have chopiweed blooming in the garden and a number of different kinds of sunflowers. One I love called Rudbeckia henry eilers, and it has quilled petals. It's quite beautiful. What else? Some late daylilies. Oh, and of course, hydrangeas. I don't know. You know, they're ubiquitous in the Northeast. And the reason they are is that they're so hardy and they bloom for such long periods of time. And now they're turning pink because the nights are colder. So it's it's lovely to see them change the color. Eventually they'll turn beige. Right yeah. now they're turning pink. Yeah. And can you describe the layout a little bit of, of your garden? Well, we have 17 acres and most of it is fields, meadows, and woods. And below the house, we have low, wet, 
well, the the field dips down and becomes wet, and then the the woods are quite rich and damp. And we actually have on one side a little wetland, which is exciting. And then behind the house, we have very dry fields and high, rocky, rather dramatic woods. I think possibly it was once a limestone quarry. The gardens themselves are tucked around the house. I have a front garden, which you walk through to get to the house. And it's kind of nice because it forces you to see things up close. And then around the back of the house, I have a a cutting garden. And it's full of annuals, you know, zinnias and cosmos, a few dahlias, parsley and basil, things like that. And then off to the side, and you can't see it, there's a swimming pool was put in, I think, about 25 years ago by a former owner. And there's just banks of hydrangeas around it. And also beautiful thug called, it's it's a Japanese anemone. It's called anemone robustissima. So you get an idea of why it's called that one. (laughs) It's to take over, but it's in bloom now. It's very beautiful. Anemones are one of my favorite fall plants. Yeah. So they're so beautiful. And then what is your daily garden practice? How often are you out? What are the things that you do? Chill in the spring, sometime in March, the garden juices get so stirring that I can barely stand to be inside. Of course, it might be snowing, (laughs) but certainly in April and May and June, I'm out as much as I possibly can be. I mean, just, you know, there's so much to do. There's weeding and editing and planting and so on. And then the heat starts in in July. And and I'm less active, which is to say I'm not spending hours. I'm not spending the majority of my time gardening. I might go out in the morning or and often my husband and I, he's mostly doing potted plants, but we'll go out at six or seven o'clock at night and weed and, and play in the garden then because it's no matter how hot it is, it's pretty nice at that time of day. And in the fall. There's not a whole lot to do except watch it and love it and cut things for the house. And then the other thing that I do, which is is just a whole nother subject, is I put up bulbs. Well, I plant bulbs and then I and I have help doing that. And I put up bulbs for our cold frames so that we have flowers in the wintertime. Yes. So I wanted to ask about how you became the gardener that you are today. And so what are your earliest memories of gardening as a young person? What sort of experiences do you have or influences? My sister and I often talk about this because we grew up in the same household and had the same influences and she's not a gardener and I am. And that always happens in a family. I started gardening really early. At first it was potted, I mean, really early, like before I was... 12 with pots of plants. I don't know how I got them, but I had them on my windowsills. But then at age 12, we had a summer house up by the mountains in New Hampshire. And I asked my dad if I could dig a garden. And he said, sure, you can. And and I did. And it was, I found an opening in the woods and I, I made a path to it and I lined it with stones. This is at 12 years old. What was I thinking of? And then it was and made a circle. And then I went in the 
woods and plundered, oh, little ferns and, and lady slippers and oh, God only knows what, <laughs> having no idea really that I maybe should have left them where they were and dug them and put them in my garden. So at age 12, for some reason, I was designing my first garden. And then early on, I got married very early and had children very early. I was in my 20s. And I was at home. I wasn't working. And I spent, I spent my days gardening. I just, I really got the bug. I hear people say, oh, I couldn't possibly be gardening because I have children. Well, that's nonsense. <laughs> you know, children love to be out there mucking around with you. And yeah. you'll find this out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I feel like I've been gardening all my life. Was there a specific moment that you sort of knew you had to be gardening? You had to stick a trowel in the ground? Yeah. You know, at some point as a teenager, I found boys and then, you know, I wasn't thinking about gardens at all. But once I had, I had a home of my own, that's when it starts, I think, really starts. Because on the other hand, I know lots and lots of people and lots of friends who didn't get the gardening bug until they were in their late 40s or 50s. I just happened to have it early. But I think I think having your own place with your own yard really helps you become a gardener. Absolutely. In your most recent book, Uprooted, you mentioned the influence of your Aunt Helen. Can you share a little bit more about your experiences with her in the garden? She influenced me greatly, I think probably more than anybody else in, in my growing up. And she loved all the things that I now love. She loved dogs and books and cooking and, and flowers. And she owned, she had a little Cape Cod house in Hingham, Massachusetts, but behind the house, she owned 30 acres of land, which now, when she died, she gave to the town. And the routine when you stayed with her was that you walked in on the paths in those woods every morning with the dogs. She always had a couple of dogs. And there, at a very early age, she started teaching me about wildflowers. And so that was a thrill. And stuck, the interest in it, I guess, stuck with me. And then she had a garden. She had a garden that that she let go a bit. So all sorts of things had naturalized. And you would walk down this garden path. And in the spring, it was just a blaze of little bulbs. And, and I loved it. And then she was also a big vegetable gardener. So yes, she was definitely in many ways, a great influence. And I love that you ultimately returned to New England, given that it had such yeah. significance for I've you. Always, yes, I've always, I've always wanted to live in New England. So here I am, and no, we're no snowbirds. We don't go to Florida or Charleston. Or, we love it up here. And in your sort of adult gardening life, beginning in your 20s, how did you learn the mechanics of gardening? Did you have any formal training? None. I never, it's sort of embarrassing to say, but I never, ever had any formal training. But Jill, you can learn a lot from two things, from reading books, and of course now, probably the internet, and doing it, you know, because you learn through your mistakes and you learn by becoming intimate with the soil and intimate with plants. 
and I was a very, I still am a voracious reader, but in those, in those early days, I read, there weren't that many garden books, but I read every one I could find. I think there was only one catalog and it was called the White, White Flower Farm. They're actually still in existence. Yes, they are. It, it was the only, I mean, in the early days, it was the only catalog I knew of. And I didn't have a lot of money, so I'd order one of this and one of that. I still have a habit of doing that. <laughs> um, so that was in the beginning. And mail-order nurseries actually became very important later on. But I think you learn most by doing and, and using your eye and, and by reading. And now there's so much on the Internet. I mean, fabulous Zoom lectures. Thanks, oddly, to COVID. Yeah. And now, you know, I have all these apps. If I, if I see a plant in the woods, I don't know. I, I have this app called, I think it's called Discovery. Is that what it's mm-hmm. called? And so on. And and those are fantastic because, I mean, they're a lot of them are amazingly accurate. So you can learn a lot. I mean, there are all sorts of modern ways now that you can learn. Absolutely. Do you think it was the early reading of English writers in particular that influenced the slightly more formal style of Duck Hill? Or did you have other influences? Uh, perhaps? Yes, yes, probably. And I had, I had in the 80s, which is when 81 was when I moved to Duck Hill. In the 80s, I I was involved with an organization in England, so I went and saw gardens there a lot. And But we also have that kind of formality in Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily English. We had at Dunbarton Oaks, which is one of my favorite public gardens. Yes. And even at Filoli, come on. <laughs> it is not... Just solely, and certainly Italian gardens, although I'm not sure that when I started Gardens at Duck Hill, I'm not sure how familiar I was with Italian gardens. But I I always thought, frankly, it was a very American garden, and I was very much influenced by, I still am, by some American garden writers. Mm-hmm. One I don't think anybody reads anymore, but she was really our Gertrude Chico, and her name was Louise Beebe Wilder. And she wrote a whole bunch of wonderful books, one on fragrance, and but a few books describing her garden, and I wanted a garden just like hers. Yes. And it, it you know, it was in, in uh, design, it was one. But yes, that, I think, absolutely learning, and, and probably the whole concept of rooms, hedged-in rooms, which, which I had at Duck Hill. Probably that's more English than anything else, except for places like Williamsburg. Right. Or Watts in the beginning. Right. Well, you mentioned Dumbarton Oaks. Beatrix Ferrand, I think also the designer there, also had a childhood garden where she tillaged from the natural flora to fill. So you're in good company. Yes. <laughs> it's one of our greats. She really yes. was. And still, some of, besides Dunbarton Oaks, you can still see her work at some universities. Mm-hmm. She's great. Absolutely. And are there any plants that are in your current garden that you sort of think of as the kind of plant that you would never be without, no garden of yours would ever be without? Well, the, I think two different answers mm-hmm. there. One, when I was, I think I was 21, maybe I was 22 or 23, 
when I had my first real garden. And the, there were two ladies next door. I think that they were old ladies, but they were probably all of 49 years old. But anyway, they had quite a burgeoning garden. And they brought me plants. And the one plant that has been with me ever since was a kind of uh, lungwort, a pulmonaria. And it's a very special one in that I've never seen it on the market. It it has blue flowers, the color of gentians. And I've brought it, I don't know how many houses I've been in, quite a few. And I've brought it, I've brought a, a clump of this beautiful lungwort to every garden. And now it's here. And I use it as a ground cover under shrubs. And it blooms very, very early. And it just... Yeah, I don't think I'd ever want to be without it, impossible. But the other thing is, there's some old-fashioned plants, not necessarily native, that I would probably always have. Daffodils. I have a real weakness for daffodils. Roses, not those awful hybrid teas, but, you know, species roses and shrub roses. I used to get the best roses from a nursery in California called Vintage Gardens. It no longer exists. And I still have the catalogs because they're just the best reading. But roses, definitely. And I guess I would always hope to have a field where there were asters and goldenrod. It's blooming now, the goldenrods and the asters are just starting. But they're very much a part of fields in New England. And they attract all kinds of butterflies and critters, critters that you want. And I guess right now, it's sort of the, the end of summer look, which is just fields of golden flowers. Beautiful. In your book, Inside Outside, you describe an early garden as being very established. What did you learn from that garden and what did you add to it? I probably was referring to not not my first garden or my second garden, but my third garden, and, which was where I lived before I lived at Duck Hill. Yes. And the reason that it's important is that it was built for and designed by a landscape architect beginning of the 20th century. I think it was built in 1905, this house and the gardens. and. I learned so much from from how he he placed the gardens. You drove up a long driveway through beautiful woods, lots of dogwood trees, and you got to I guess you would call it the front of the house because it was the the main door, but I think of it kind of as the back of the house because the front of the house looked out onto a garden and then a meadow and then the woods on both sides and it and you stepped down into the garden and there were lots of doors that opened up to this garden and it was just it was magical nobody had really done anything for years so i got right to it i think there were peonies left and then the woods and this was about the same amount of property we have now but the woods were very different and they were mostly oak trees, and they were the woods were littered with wildflowers. So it was my first experience, besides my family house where I grew up in the summertime, it was my first experience 
thrilling to wildflowers on my own property. So that was neat. And then Duck Hill was completely, it was three acres and it was all garden. It was, there was nothing wild there. And with the development of Duck Hill, what were the influences you took in at that time, if at all? Well, the first thing was that at that point I was, I was in my 40s when we moved to Duck Hill. And I was just nuts about shrub roses, old shrub roses. So we had lots of those. But also I was being influenced. I mean, that was really the beginning in the 80s and 90s of this thinking about native plants. And I was there for 34 years. And Bosco, my husband, was there with me for about 14 or 15 of those years. Anyway, we planted a ton of flowering trees and shrubs. I think at least 20 or 30 dogwoods. I don't know how we jammed them all in on on three acres. And I started to think about the fact that I should, not should, but that there was a reason to be adding native plants to the garden to attract and feed birds and butterflies and so on. And, And so I did my education started there on the value of having a percentage of your garden be native. And also there, Jill, I, I started to write books about other places and other gardens. And I wrote a book called, the first book like that was a book called Breaking Ground. Mm-hmm. And two of, it was a profiles of garden designers. And two of them, anyway, were from California. And one of them was from your area, a man still gardening called Ron Lutzko. Mm-hmm. And he was passionate about the native landscape of your hills. And I was very, I was very influenced in those days by these garden designers that I wrote about. In fact, that went on for many years. Well, reading is clearly a passion for you, as as you mentioned, and what is is so clear from your own writing. But can you tell us any of the garden writers, in addition to those that you've mentioned, that influenced your development as either a garden or a garden writer? I'm not sure any garden book influenced me as a garden writer. A a poet actually called May Spartan, who wrote two incredible journals. One was called Journal of a Solitude, and the other was called Plant Dreaming Deep. And I was in my 20s when I read them. Because of her, I started keeping a journal. And for years, I kept a journal. And then after we were at Duck Hill for a while, I decided to keep a journal about the garden. And that led to my first book. Your journal practice, is that still something that you have today? I keep a garden book. I keep a couple of garden books. I keep a garden book, which is, this is what I've ordered. This is what I planted. This is what's died. I mean, it's, you know, I just keep it. Well, I keep it throughout the year. So there are a lot of lists and then there'll be a plant crossed off and it'll say sadly died. (laughs) Um, But so that is actually very helpful. And it also talks about the weather. And it's amazing how much you forget. I've been keeping those garden journals since the beginning of Duck Hill. So I'm pretty good about keeping that up. In the middle of the summer, I get kind of lapsed. But then I started another book, which is sort of fun. 
and tedious by the end by the end of the summer, which is what's in bloom in the gardens and in the woods and fields every week. So every week, starting in beginning of March or whenever it is it starts, I list what's in flower. And it's amazing how it fluctuates from year to year. And I try and put in their proper Latin names, let alone their common names. So it's kind of a good reference, too. I did something to my right hand this summer. It's a tendon thing. And it was very painful to write. So write longhand. Yeah. And of course, if I were modern, I would have done this on a computer. But I'm not. And I I just have a, a journal that I write in. So I stopped writing. There's going to be this great blank and summer in my what's in bloom it's actually fun to to have a book where you write down what's in bloom yeah i i definitely will want to take that on <laughs> how did your sort of writing career your professional garden life how did that develop i wrote a journal about duck hill actually i wrote a journal first about my former garden but then i wrote a journal about Duck Hill is a present for my children and my husband, my then husband. And I illustrated it rather poorly, but I illustrated it in watercolors. And I guess I showed it to a few friends. And one friend was this woman named Linda Yang. And for many years, she was the garden editor at the New York Times. And she said, this was like after I'd been at Duck Hill about eight or nine or 10 years. And she said, Paige, you should write a book. And about the garden. And she said, I'm going to introduce you to my agent, my literary agent. <laughs> so she did. And I just sort of naively sat down and started writing this book. It became a book called Duck Hill Journal. And I wrote about half of it and sent it off to this agent. And she said, I like it. Write a little more. So I wrote a little more, and I sent it to her, and she said, fine. And she sent it off to Houghton Mifflin, which is a, it was then a small publishing company in Boston with the most wonderful garden editor named Frances Tenenbaum. And they liked it. It was just the easiest thing I've ever done. I mean, it's not <laughs> easy to get books published anymore. No. She liked it and said, finish it. Anyway, that was my first book. and then. The second book was this agent coming to me and saying, Paige, I, I know this photographer and she wants to do a book about young garden designers and she wasn't interested in writing. Her name was Erica Lenard. And so she said, would you like to write it? And I was going through a divorce at the time. And the idea of a project like that really appealed to me. So. We decided on 10 garden designers, preferably under the age of 50, and she insisted on two of them, and the rest were for me to pick, and it was so much fun, and I picked six Americans and four Europeans, one, by the way, who's Pete Uldaf, mm -hmm. the great Pete Uldaf, who in those days, I know, <laughs> was hardly known at all, and I spent the next two years working, traveling all over and working on that book. And it, it kind of changed my life. It made me grow in my thinking as a gardener. And then it just kind of went on from there. What is so inspiring about 
all of your work is just how much you're always, always learning, always so creative and growing. You're never too old, Mm -hmm. you know, in gardening. I mean, there's, I learn stuff every day. And also we learn from our mistakes. We all make terrible mistakes in the garden and we go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. No, maybe I should rethink this. Right. I find it very forgiving. I'm not sure if, you know, when you had Duck Hill, since many people visited it, I don't know if you had as much, if you felt like you could sort of make mistakes in the same way as it became more well-known. I made terrible mistakes and, and often corrected them. I remember I had this herb garden that you, that was really a pretty garden that you went out to from the kitchen doors. And it was a patterned herb garden. And this wonderful woman who was much older than I was, said, oh, put a Barbary hedge around it because Barbary is a herd. The roots and the fruit were used. And it's cheap. And in those days, I didn't have a deer fence. No deer's going to eat Barbary, as we all know. Right. And uh, so I did. I, I mean, I bought them over the, in the mail, you know, little tiny plants. And well, first of all, I learned later that it's just about our worst invasive in Northeast woods. And then on a, down at a different level, it was just a horrible thing to have because I, I had to keep it clipped in order to make it look like a hedge. And all these little clippings had thorns and they would drop into the beds. And so it, it became a hated, painful thing. And finally, ugh, I dug it all in one fall and redid all the soil and let it sit over winter and then in the spring. And spent all winter thinking what I was going to replace it with. And in the spring, did replace it. But so, yeah, even though the garden was open a lot, I could still do things like that. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, a, a barbarian that was planted and removed and came back. It is a tenacious, tenacious plant. Oh, but we've all planted things that became such weeds that uh, you think, why did I ever do that? Right. You mentioned earlier bringing your own children into the garden. How did you do that when they were young? Are any of them gardeners now? I have four children. Two are gardeners. One, my older daughter, Kim, she's an artist and a teacher. But she has, I remember when she was dating boys in in New York City. I mean, she was grown up, had a job in New York City. But she would come to whatever apartment they were living in, where anywhere where there was a little yard, she would come home at night and garden by a flashlight. I mean, she, from the beginning, she had the bug big. My older son, since who's now 59, has come to it more recently and is keen. He's particularly keen about birds. So a lot of what he plants has to do with birds. He and his wife become great gardeners. You know, I was a captive audience. They knew when they came home from school that there I was on my hands and knees. I mean, in those days, well, early on, I'd be gardening all day. And so they would sit by me and tell me about their ventures and their worries and their conflicts and so on. It was, they knew I'd be there if they needed me. So there was that. Two of them, two of the four children, both of them, they, I don't think they know a daffodil from a tulip. It just, it went over their heads. But I think the fact that they could just muck around or lie in the grass with me when I was gardening, it, it just, I don't know, it worked. I think it's harder now, Jill, because 
so many young women, most young women have to work. Many of outside of the home, but even in the home, you still, you know, have to work all day. So I think it's hard to also garden or to expect to have any kind of garden that's weed free. There's no such thing. Right. And I mean, I was privileged in that in those early days before I started writing books that I didn't work and I could play. Yeah. The playing became more than a pastime. That is very true about the demands of modern life. I think, though, that what I draw from so much of your work is that the importance of that play, get out there and sort of and be in it because it's so, it's such an important creative outlet. Not only a, a very important creative outlet, but also if you're troubled, if you have a headache, you're feeling down, the horrors of the world have gotten to you. You can be restored by working in a garden or just being in a garden. And I felt that the whole time I was going through a divorce and then living alone and so on. I mean, it was, it was my solace. It was my, it was my haven. And again, here we are. It was, I mean, for the us lucky ones during COVID who've had a garden to work in. I mean, a place where you could forget what was going on, not forget, but put aside and just get involved in the earth and the, the plants and the bugs and the birds singing and so on. How lucky are we that this was a distraction that we've had in these last rather horrifying years? Yes, absolutely. And I think very beautiful that so many people immediately went right to that, even if it wasn't something that was in their so true. family at all, history at all. You know, it was just amazing. It's so true. I mean, gardening businesses have never done so well. And hooray. I love that. Love that people have, have turned to gardening in, in tough times. Yeah. You're part of the Garden Conservancy. There is the, and also on the board of a number of gardens on the East Coast, do you see that as something that is continuing, that that will sort of oh, be sustained? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. One of the gardens I'm involved in is called Hollister House. It's mm -hmm. in Washington, Connecticut. And they did it so well, they being the people running Hollister House. Pretty much all during the pandemic, they were allowing people in the garden. Just, a, you know, a few, and the garden was big enough so that they could keep their their space. And I think they were asked to wear masks. And it, it brought joy to many, many people. And the Garden I mean, this year, we were open for the Garden Conservancy. And again, I mean, people were asked to wear masks. Although by the time in June when we were open, it was, it was a time when we felt things were, were better. And that when you're outside, you didn't need a mask. So... I think there'll always be gardens to go to if you don't have one of your own. Well, there will always be gardens where you can go and lose yourself. And hooray for that. Yes. And I wanted to go back briefly to the transition from Duck Hill to Church House. Can you describe how that decision was made? Duck Hill was in Westchester County, which is about 60 miles north of New York City. And it's a, a very expensive county to live in because it's a commuting. It's, they were all commuters. And 
my oldest son was visiting us and I thought I would always live at Duck Hill. I thought that I would live there until I died. But my son was visiting us and he was looking at my finances and he said, Mom, if you stay here, you're going to you're gonna run out of money in about 10 years. And it was like a thunderclap. And then I looked at my husband, my darling husband, who had just turned 80. And it really, we had some help, some daily. I mean, I think once or twice a week in the, in the spring, we had wonderful young Latin American helpers, gardeners who would come for a few hours and help us. But generally, we well, I did most of the gardening, and but Bosco did did a lot of it too, and it was a lot to take care of. And because we had gained as a garden, we had gained notoriety, and many people wanted to come and see the garden. There was this pressure always to have it looking as good as it possibly could. And so, with that in mind, the fact we were getting older. And the finances, we made the decision to move. And once I'd made the decision, I cried a lot for a couple of weeks. And then I started to get excited about finding a new place. The transition, well, I wanted another old farmhouse. Duck Hill was a 19th century farmhouse. Bosco wanted a Victorian. He loves high ceilings. And we knew we wanted to be in New England. And, and we chose this northwest corner of Connecticut because it's very rural and just so beautiful and yet not too far away from New York. So we started hunting. Well, we ended up with this old church. Certainly not anything that we had in mind as a house, but we ended up with it because we fell in love with the land. I One of the things I, I had wanted was a meadow. Well, church house, as we call it, is surrounded by meadows. And But what neither of us was expecting and what we fell in love with is that it has a view of the, of the hills, the mountains. So it's just, I can't tell you, I think it happens with mountains and it happens with water. Every hour it changes, the light on the hills, or as you know, the light on water. And it, it very much is a huge part of our life here, looking at the hills and watching them change color and atmosphere and so on. So we did buy this place and the land, the wild land here, just became this unexpected, thrilling part of my new existence. And I I could shed, it took a couple of years, I think, but I, I was no longer clinging to Duck Hill. I was no longer even wishing that I was there because I was so excited about this new adventure having mostly to do with the uncultivated land. So making paths, working to get rid of invasives, just learning all these. One difference between Duck Hill and Church House is that Duck Hill had an acid soil, not terribly acid, but acid enough. And this is, this is limestone. This is calcareous. This is sweet soil. And so there are all kinds of things in the woods and fields that grow here that I was unfamiliar with. And that's been, so that's, as you say, I, every day I learn. And I learn about something new, which is so exciting. Well, and I love that you kind of comes full circle. You're still going into the woods and making a garden, but there, rather than bringing that, bringing it to you 
you're going to it and sort of building boardwalks and paths. Yes. And the paths are to me that I keep, I have this wonderful young man who works for me once a week named John. He and I work in the woods and in the field and say, John, what if we have a, let's have a path over here. But the difference is we had a, what I called a woodland path at Duck Hill. In the end, it was my favorite garden at Duck Hill. It was just full of the prettiest things. Spring ephemerals and ephemediums and every, oh, just, it was just beautiful. But it was garden. And here, the woodland is real woodland. And although we do, we being a little bit the royal we, John and I do, as we clear invasives, we plant baby trees and shrubs that are that already exist there but so that we have something in the canopy where we've cleared other things that are bad but other than that i'm not planting the woodland i'm just trying to nurture it Mm -hmm. and pretty much the same thing with the fields in the back field near the garden i do put in some plugs of native things like asclepius tuberosa the butterfly weed but mostly it's letting nature do its own thing and learning from it and enjoying it. So it's a different kind of gardening. Absolutely. And when you visit gardens today, what do you look for? How do you analyze? Not to say that you're, you know, always have that lens on, but if and when you do. I always do. Yeah, you do. (laughs) I, first of all, I'm always looking for an, I mean, I'm always wanting or looking for an atmosphere. I don't know. It could be formal. It could be informal. And also, if the place has a mood and atmosphere, very much appeals to me. And I love to see people being passionate and joyful in their gardens. And it can be the, just the tiniest little city plot. And you can always tell when somebody is just joyous about what they planted. I love to see that. And I also love to see a sense of humor. Sometimes you can get too corny, but (laughs) if you walk in a garden and something makes you laugh, that's kind of fun. I love all kinds of gardens. I love them wild and woolly, and I love them. I love a green garden and just all hedges and box. I mean, I think a garden has to suit the person. Erase that. I don't think anything has to be anything. I don't think anything should be anything. But I think it's good when when a garden is an expression of the person who makes it and also suits the setting and perhaps even the building that it's around. I think those are the gardens that I, I like the best. I think young gardeners shouldn't be ever afraid of just do it. Just do what you want. Clashing colors, whatever you want to do. Go for it. Listen to your inner self and and play and have fun. Don't ever think about what other people are going to think about. Absolutely. And then do you have any other specific plans sort of for the garden this season? I think my dreaming time, the time when I'm thinking about, you know, what what's going to happen in the garden or what I'm excited about is is in the winter time. And of course that's when you start to get catalogs and mail order and all of that deliciousness. In the fall, the landscape is so spectacular around here. And it starts in late September, but then October and November, it's 
just takes your breath away. And I, I kind of give in to that. But mostly I'm thinking about the indoors in the fall and in the winter and the spring, I start to think about what I'm going to do outdoors. No more. I'm not digging any more garden beds. (laughs) You say that now, but in March. (laughs) It is a disease, you know. (laughs) This has been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so, so much. And you too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com.